the, fam- the family of Christ here in, in Anderson. This morning, though, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we will be covering a rather sober topic. just want to put that forth to you all ahead of time, because we'll be dealing with the topic of false teachers, false prophets, and false shepherds. And you might be wondering to yourself this morning, does this matter? Are we really in danger? Do we really need to flee what is false in the church today? And there are many reasons and many answers to that question that we'll delve into. But I'm going to start with a story, an illustration from history, um, which will perhaps enlighten the issue. In 2004, a controversial movie was released, which detailed the last days of uh, Adolf Hitler, the, uh, the ruler of the infamous Third Reich. It was the last days that he spent in his Berlin bunker right at the, the end of World War II. This, this film was titled Downfall. And it really is an emotional and a, and a dark movie, but it's, the historicity of it is phenomenal and unparalleled because uh, it was based on several eyewitness testimonies. So why, why was it controversial? It was centered upon the person of Hitler, and the film had many scenes which showed his megalomania and sheer incompetence and the craziness of this man. But that's not what made it controversial. What made this film controversial was because there were also a number of scenes which depicted Hitler as a normal, congenial, unremarkable, docile, kind, old man. In fact, he is shown to be a rather fatherly and well-spoken figure, and many people admired him. Like, there's this one scene where he's in a room with several young men, and they're idolizing this man. They're just shown to love him, and he's shown to be very kind. And for some people in Germany at this time, this was crossing a line. Only 60 years from the end of the Third Reich, um, a vigorous debate rippled through the news media in Germany in 2004 about this depiction of Hitler. And one tabloid even said this. They said, are we allowed to show the monster as a human being? In response to this critique, another German journalist wisely responded with this saying, they just got it wrong. Bad people do not walk around with claws like vicious monsters, even though it might be comforting to think so. Rather, everyone intelligent knows that evil comes along with a smiling face. Evil comes along with a smiling face. So so why does this matter to us this morning? Because this truth comes straight to us from Scripture as well. Paul puts it uh, well when he says in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and his followers, false teachers, do the same. So, so this morning, the Word of God forces us to tackle with an extremely difficult part of Scripture. And I'm, I've got to be honest, it doesn't bring my heart an abundance of joy to talk about such a sobering topic. And yet my duty to exposit God's Word faithfully demands that I do so. For we all need to hear this. Because 2 Peter chapter 2 is one of the hardest chapters in all of the Bible. Because here Peter warns us of the dangers of letting the the veneer of a man keep us from examining his theology. The dangers of letting style in a sermon keep us from examining content, what they're actually saying. And the Bible is filled with such calls for readiness, and I'm going to read a few for us real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, so if the miracle actually happens, 
And then he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says this, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And lastly, 2 Timothy 4 says this, um, Paul speaking to Timothy, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So friends, as we examine 2 Peter chapter 2, the first three verses this morning, let us come to God's word with a healthy, a healthy amount of sobriety, hoping to reach a state not of constant terror, but neither one of foolish complacency, so that we may keep watch over this church and the gospel of Christ. May we flee what is false this morning. Um, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, this is a difficult topic to study in Scripture, and yet your word teaches it to us. And Lord, this church, the foundation of this church is the word of Christ, the word of God. And may we cling fast to that, even when it is difficult. And may we learn about Jesus, even from these hard passages. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So in each of these three verses this morning, we will see three things. We will see uh, who these false teachers are, what they do, as well as the result of their actions from God's perspective. And I'll be giving appropriate examples of false teaching as we walk through this text. So begin with me in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Please open your Bibles to there. It reads, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We would do well to remember um, what Peter taught us in the last chapter as we go into this chapter. Namely, that our salvation is glorious. It's beautiful, immovable, unchangeable, And it's created for the one purpose, which is that the church might reflect God's glory in their good works. It's the purpose of our salvation. Uh, And not only that, but our salvation is grounded in the certainty that Jesus is coming back. This is a grounding for the fact that we should live holy lives. Mr. Howard mentioned it earlier that at the Synod we heard, uh, was it seven, eight sermons? It was a lot. But I think it was the first one pastor preached for about 30 minutes on the certainty that Christ is returning. It was a beautiful way to start the synod. Fixed my mind clearly on the coming return of Christ, which is important because that's one of the chief heresies of false teachers, is either actively or passively denying Jesus's return. They're actively saying it will not happen or just avoiding it. Both are false teachings. But the the, the beauty in which Peter builds up his argument is astounding. 
He's talking about our salvation and the beauties of Christ over and over. It builds into a crescendo to his main point. He teaches us all about what is true so that we may discern and recognize what is false. Mainly, the false teachers that will come. So Peter's point is to protect his people, to guard, to shield them against what is to come. So, let's begin. What do we learn about who these false teachers are? Peter begins by pointing us backwards to the Old Testament in in humility. Because just as false prophets plagued the Old Testament church, so too does he promise that false teachers will plague the church nowadays. And they'll be coming to us not from outside, but from within our very doors. Just a quick glance through the Old Testament is enough for us to see that this is indeed true. On Wednesday nights, me and the young boys of this church have been walking through the Old Testament, slowly but surely. And this, not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, we began in the book of Numbers. And it was astounding to me how often this people of God, after their salvation from Egypt, rebelled against the Lord. And then I thought about it. Not one of these rebellions came from somebody outside the camp of Israel. Every single one, to my knowledge, started from people within the camp. Peter says it's the same for the church. And God abhors false teachers, people who toy with the word of God. They claim to feed the lambs of God the food of heaven. But in reality, they parade and they feed death to those too weak to understand. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every person. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And today we're the same. Because Peter's main point is this. Wolves come to us from within the fold. From within the church. They're wearing sheep's clothing. And that doesn't mean they're pretending to be sheep. It means they're pretending to be our shepherd. This is a promise. They will come and we must be prepared. So that's who they are, but what will they do? It says that these teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. There there is a a devious nature to this word, secretly bring in. Why? Because they're bringing in something that's not original, something that is foreign to the purity of the gospel. Which is why one reason, like the argument that says it's good because it's new, is never a good argument. Just don't do that. But what what do they bring in? It says that they bring in destructive heresies. This this word means a a destructive dogma or a a teaching. And it's used elsewhere in the Bible to um, talk about a sect or a faction that is separate from the church. And these heresies have a particular goal, purpose. The destruction of your faith. Destructive heresies. And they do this by denying the master who bought them. And they, they, so right here, it's certainly referring to God. But what, is, what does it mean? The word here for master is not the typical word that we see in the New Testament for Lord. That is kurios. This word right here actually is a different one. It's despotes, where we get our modern word despot or ruler. And here it specifically means one who has legal control over. And in that context, it would have meant an owner to a slave in reality. But here's what Peter is trying to say. He's trying to say, when you're saved or when you claim to be saved, 
Christ's lordship in your life extends over your whole being, both body and soul. He bought you. He owns you, and he's a good master. So in a sense, to deny your sinfulness and refuse to repent and grow in holiness is to deny your master, which is what Peter says these false teachers will do. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 reads this. Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, the false teachers, by their fruits. Some people, when they look at this verse, denying the master, they, they, believe, they see it as a teaching that a true believer can fall away from faith by denying their master. Um, and as a response to this, I'd say, a quick reading of the rest of the chapter shows that such false teachers were never original believers to begin with. 1 John chapter 2 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, they left, that it might become plain that they are not of us. These false teachers are people who claim to be bought by Christ, but never truly experienced an inward change. And verse 1 ends by showing us the result, the divine perspective of their actions. It says this, that they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. If you're like me, when I first read that, I was thinking to myself, what, is, what does that mean? Swift destruction. Because when I hear swift destruction, I think guillotine. I don't know why. That's just what comes to my mind. And, but here's, here's the problem with thinking like that. I've heard and witnessed many stories of false teachers in the church who, from my perspective, it doesn't seem like they're getting swift destruction. In fact, it's often the other way. Such false teachers gain a lot of wealth. They're doing well. Their church is filled with people, and they live to a ripe old age. So what does this mean when it says swift destruction? So throughout the whole Bible, God's people are encouraged to see his view of justice in an already, but not yet fashion. They're already judged, but in a sense, the judgment is yet to come. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. And the end of Psalm 1 says this. It says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So once again, how is their judgment swift? And I believe it's because our God knows their end. And in a very real way, leaving a false teacher in his sin is the worst judgment that the Lord can do. The Lord keeps track of every stray word and thought. And we should find comfort in the fact that God's judgment is sure. Even though evil rages, it's already lost. It's, it's like when you cut the head off a snake. It's still going to arrive. And I've even heard stories of like a snake that's been killed still biting people. And yet that snake is dead. It's the same with false teaching in this world. 
I, I think a, a proper example of false teaching from this first verse comes to us from the, the book of Jeremiah. It's a very sad book. He's called the weeping prophet for a reason. But at this time, God's people were not following the covenant. They were not obeying him. In fact, they were living however they wanted to live and claiming that God loved them still. And the Lord promised invasion and exile as punishment. And he sent the poor prophet Jeremiah to be the one to proclaim all of this bad news to his people. And naturally, they did not listen. They did not want to hear. They wanted to hear about God's love. They didn't want to hear about God's discipline. But false teachers arose to combat Jeremiah's words. And in Jeremiah 6, verse 14, uh, it says this. They, these false prophets, have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Further on, Jeremiah 23, verses 16 through 17, also says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own mind, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of God, It shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. These false teachers are preying on the fact that people want to hear good news. And guess what? Jerusalem did fall. What the Lord promised did come to pass. But is this not what we see in our churches nowadays? Churches would, pastors would rather look at their congregations and say, peace, peace, all is well with you. Rather than say, you are a sinner and you need to be right with the Lord. Today we are the same. Because God's mastery is denied when preachers avoid people's sin or when preachers avoid their own sin. So let's move on to verse 2, which reads this. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So once again, we see a picture of who these false teachers will be. And it starts with saying many will follow them. So who are they? False teachers are popular. They're popular. Man, that's hard. Friends, what else can we learn from this except that within the people of God, numbers are never a signifier of success. Numbers alone are never a signifier of success. And they never guarantee that the Lord is actually with a person. And yet, unfortunately, they're the main thing that modern churches focus upon. But the Lord has always been against this way of thinking. Let me read a few passages. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says this, It was not because you, Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God's love guided him to choose the Israelites, not their numbers. Even in the book of Isaiah, God does not speak of his true people as a multitude. He calls them a a remnant. And let me read another portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And yet numbers will never fail to captivate people. I'm guilty of this. Like when one person doesn't show up to youth group who I thought was going to be there, like it hurts me. And I'm guilty of this. 
And I think as a church, we need to always remind ourselves that the Lord is sovereign over the numbers. Because this is, is this not the bedrock of the modern megachurch movement? Let's get as many people in here as possible so that we can save some. And yet, along the process, they give up parts of the Lord's word that are difficult. Even growing up in my church, I remember leaving the stage after playing worship, walking up with my my worship pastor, and we'd get up to the sound booth, and it was almost a tradition. My my youth pastor would get up there, and he'd flip open the book that had the numbers. not saying it's wrong to have a book with numbers, but he'd flip it open, and he'd see the decline, and his face would fall. And I just saw the depression ripple across his eyes, and it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch. So what benefit would it be if Christ reformed tripled in size and yet we forfeited the beauty of the gospel? Even in the slightest. What benefit would that be? I find uh, Jonathan's words, the son of Saul in 1 Samuel, to be comforting. He says, For the Lord, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by either many or few. I think that should be our perspective. Nothing can hinder God's work if his word is there Because he'll save by either many or few. And I believe God tells us this so that when it happens, when decline does happen, when hard times do happen, we would not be discouraged. For he's told us. He's already told us. There there was another sermon at Synod which I thought was wonderful that pastors needed to hear. This man got up there and he just told story after story of how people had left his church in the past year either complaining about the preaching or the liturgy or not being fed or various complaints. And he stood up there and preached, I believe, from the Gospel of John, saying, God has not lost any of his people. You might think he has, but he has not. And it was beautiful to hear. So let us remember, many will follow the false teachers. That's one of their signifiers. Um, And what are they doing? Uh, This verse teaches us that these false teachers, that people want to follow their sensuality. It's a pretty broad word, but let me kind of break it down for us. It literally means a a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable, or self-abandonment. It's another way to read it. It's got a wide range of use, a lot of bad things, but because of its use in the New Testament, it definitely has a sexual bent to it. Sensuality. John MacArthur says this, he says, As Peter repeatedly addressed their sinful behavior, he made it clear that unmitigated sensuality is a distinguishing mark of these spiritual counterfeits. A teacher may claim to be God's spokesperson, but if his life is characterized by corruption, lust, and immorality, it proves that he's actually a fraud. And once again, a sober topic. How many of us in this room have heard of a great pastor, Bible teacher, Christian leader who years later or years into his ministry was brought down by some scandal? How many of us have heard those stories? It's sobering and it's discouraging and yet it's true. Rather than being paragons for Christ's holiness, such false teachers give ground over and over and over again and preach grace Unrelent, constantly, so that people would sympathize into their weakness. Now, does this mean that a pastor should never sin, or a pastor should never fall? Absolutely not, right? 
Just ask Dr. Campbell or I. Like, every pastor falls in an endless amount of ways. But I do think that there are some sins that lead to death for which a pastor should be disqualified. The scriptures teach that an overseer must be above reproach. There is a line. Sometimes it's hard to find, but there is a line. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There is a sense in which if the one who preached Christ to you then lives against it, the name of Jesus is blasphemed. There's a sense in which that is true. So pastors really need men surrounding them who know their sin intimately, with whom there are no secrets, and where the forgiveness and grace of Christ is not just talked about, but applied. Don't we all need that? I think we all need that. And what is the result that we see in this verse? Um, Because of those who are false teachers, the name of Christ will be blasphemed, the way of truth. We hear this echoed in Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, For it, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Holy lives bring glory to the name of Jesus. But the opposite is true as well. Unholy lives bring the name of God into derision. And I think a hard example of this is uh, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias was a well-known international apologist, traveled all over the world, uh, apologist for the Christian faith, and was famous for answering deep philosophical questions. Very well, very well-spoken individual. Uh, I grew up watching many of his videos myself. And he died a little over a year ago. However, soon after his death, details surfaced about his many sexual deviances. According to many sources, he frequently visited, both in the States and abroad, massage parlors where he would receive and coerce favors from young women. I won't go into much more detail, but you can find this. According to some interviews, he would even utilize his position as a Christian teacher to obtain such favors. And most accusations were hushed up until after his death. Paid off. I'd say this is an example of a false teacher. A man whose heart was clearly more focused upon this world than the next. And this, the hard question that comes up with someone like Ravi Zacharias is, how should we remember such a person? How do we think of and remember somebody who said true things and yet things come out about his life that aren't worth mentioning? I, I believe, this might sound harsh, I believe we should remember such a man the way the, the scriptures remember the prophet Balaam. This man was not a believer. He was against the people of Israel, and yet he spoke things that were true. He even predicted Christ. And yet when the scriptures remember them, they remember him as a wicked man. Not worth following, not worth emulating. And personally, I would rather look to and point people to a tree whose fruit is good than to a tree whose fruit is evil. Man, this is hard. Let's move on to verse 3. Verse 3 reads, um, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So who are these people? They're driven by greed. Um, And the sin of greed is an earnest desire for the things of this age rather than the things of the age to come. 
The word literally means the state of desiring to have more than one's due. Greediness, insatiableness, or covetousness, which the scriptures teach is idolatry. And false teachers do just this, focusing on getting you to have earthly wealth or earthly possessions, but they neglect to teach on the heavenly truths. During the Reformation, I think we see an example of this. There was a reason why Luther was upset. I can't go through a sermon without mentioning Luther. There was a reason why Luther was upset with the Roman church. And it wasn't just that they were preaching a false gospel. It wasn't just that they were preaching indulgences, but it was the purpose of those as well. Because the reason the Pope was giving indulgences, paying money to get souls out of purgatory, was because he wanted to build a big church. I've been there. St. Peter's is a beautiful church. And yet, Luther says this. He says, that basilical, basilica, by praying on the weak, was built up by the skin, flesh, and bone of the Pope's sheep. They're selling lies in order to get money for earthly things. Luther also says this, Why does not the Pope, whose wealth is greater today than the wealth of the richest Crassus, why does he not build this St. Peter's Basilica with his own money, rather than with the money of poor believers? Friends, greed is always one of the chief motivators of false teachers. And Luther called out this greed, and we should too. Now, should, should pastors be paid well for their work? Absolutely. A worker is worthy of his wages. And yet, churches and pastors should always be preaching against the sin of greed in the heart. Because that's where it begins. What do they do, these false teachers? It says that they exploit you. Literally, this is a term of trading, of buying and selling. He's literally saying, they will buy you and then they'll sell you. You're not worth anything to them. They want the money, not your souls. It's interesting, this word here for false words, eventually over time, is where we get our word plastic, meaning like fake, not real, not original. They use fake words to buy and sell the sheep of God. And the result of their action is that their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their judgment is not asleep. God is not asleep, even though it may seem from our earthly perspective that he often is. And this should bring us comfort, friends. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 through 14 says this. Says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I'm going to give you one last example of false teaching, which I believe is relevant to the church today. I believe in this past year, the issue of racism in this country has been a source of a number of false teachings, especially in the church. I've seen this. And I would love to talk to you about this if you have questions. And we all need to be discerning and knowledgeable in God's words over this issue. Why do I think this? I have three reasons. First, I disagree with modern teachings about racism because they are not harsh enough. You heard me right. The scriptures do not use the language of racism, but of partiality, rather. The sin of receiving or judging someone based solely upon what you see, upon how they look. And guess what? The scriptures teach this is a sin all people are guilty of, bar none. 
all of us fall short of God's glory in this area. Because God is the only one who shows no partiality, who judges perfectly. Second, I disagree with modern teachings on racism because it focuses on the sins primarily of one group rather than the sins of all mankind. And this, this, this effectively means only one group has a chance to repent, which effectively means a whole group of people are being robbed of the gospel. That is a big issue. I can tell you this, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven by claiming I was oppressed or I was sinned against. Rather, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven by proclaiming I am a wicked sinner in the need of a righteous Savior who covers me and forgives me. It is the job of the church to preach that truth and that truth alone. God, not man, has shown us how to achieve true reconciliation, and that is through the cross of Christ. Lastly, number three, I disagree with much modern teaching on the issue of racism because it defies the basic tenets of Christian charity. Many modern teaching on racism that I've heard basically say, if you think it's racist, it probably is. Or if it can be taken as racist, it probably is. And this is not how the Christian is meant to think. Whereas the Lord teaches us to assume the best in others, to be slow to judge, um, knowing that we're not God. We are supposed to strive for unity and to admit that only the Lord knows the heart of a man. Please read the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 144, for more. Because only God knows the heart. So this, this has been a hard topic today. And in conclusion, um, we could talk much about the sin of others, sin of false teachers, and, and forget that this is an issue of our hearts as well. For how often do you leave the church and not live out the very things you heard preached? Or how often do your actions portray a life different from what your mouth confesses on Sunday? So take care to keep yourself from undue pride. For to be a hearer of the word only and not a doer is condemnable just like the sins of false teachers. But the Lord tears down that he might heal. The law is merciless against those who show no mercy. And his word convicts us that we might find hope in the grace of Jesus. So I'm going to encourage you in closing with this final thought. Every single negative trait of these false teachers that we read should point our minds to the positive traits of Christ. Every trait about a false shepherd should point us to the good shepherd, the goodness of Jesus. For each of these aspects of false creature, teachers, Christ is our true teacher. He has always been with his people and will never leave them. False teachers deceive and connive to destroy your soul, but Christ comes and declares nothing but the truth. Jesus never denied his master, but only said what God told him to False teachers are riddled with sexual immorality and failure. But think about this. Christ never once lingered upon a false thought. He never once sinned in word, thought, or deed. False teachers buy and sell their sheep for their own gain. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. Lastly, these teachers, evil and their judgment, were determined by God from long ago. 
Whereas Christ's humble incarnation and his sacrifice was planned before the foundation of the world. Even the best teacher is sinful. Christ is faithful. Flee what is false by clinging to Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a sobering topic. What a hard thing to deal with in our hearts and in this world. Hardly it seems that a year passes before some paragon of the faith falls. And yet, Lord, you have told us this will happen. You have told us ahead of time that Judas would fall away so that we wouldn't be discouraged when we read it again and again. So, Lord, let us not be discouraged in heart when teachers prove themselves to be false, but let us point our souls to the one who is never false, to our good shepherd, who watches his sheep, who guides us in paths of righteousness. I thank you for Jesus and for his faithfulness. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.